rise for your honorable host, Nick Amell. This is the Tennis Podcast, the show where we cover top tennis lists. Every week, either myself or my sidekick host will bring a top 10 list. The other person doesn't know what that list is ahead of time, and they try to guess all items on the list in real time, along with you, the folks at home. Our regular sidekick host, Brandon, is still on hiatus. So today I'm joined by a new guest sidekick host, Rebecca Sebastian. She is a TV host, true crime trivia extraordinaire, and podcast host. I know her most from her true crime podcast, Dialogue. Rebecca, how are you doing? Hey, Nick. I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So glad you could join us on Dialogue, your show. And by the way, that's Dialogue. Rebecca interviews compelling personalities, players, or experts in the true crime and criminal justice space. I was on the show myself back in September 2021. We covered the top 10 cults you probably haven't heard of. And Rebecca, uh, your show has become my go-to cult resource. (laughs) You like your cults over there. And in fact, you just finished, as we're recording this, you just finished your three-part series on the business of cults, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Huge kudos to you. Thank you. I don't know if I should say sorry or you're you're welcome. (laughs) Both. Both But I'm glad you enjoy the cult content. Yeah, I think they both apply. People also really love when I focus on cults. That's why I, I, and I'm so happy because I can always delve into cults. So it's been fun. Yes. Surprisingly. You've always got cults on the tip of your tongue. I can tell. Yes. But Rebecca, I kind of gave you an intro there, but I would love for you to also give a really quick overview of who you are for the listeners. Uh, I host two podcasts now. So as Nick mentioned, one is called Dialogue and it's D-I-E, of course, Mm -hmm. where we kill the small talk per se. I interview people in true crime. So they're creators, they might be on law enforcement, lawyers, but basically anybody with a perspective on criminal justice and true crime, we look at the genre itself, tropes included, and we critique it. And we talk about what we celebrate about it and what we also think, you know, could use some work. My other podcast is called Criminality. And it is an intersection of reality TV and crime. So on that show, I have a co-host named Melissa, and we each take turns telling stories of people you know from reality TV who've gotten in trouble with the law, no murder. So it's nice, a little lighter. (laughs) I also host a trivia show, as you mentioned, though I wish you hadn't, because that makes me sound like I might be good tonight and people might have expectations that I'm going to be able to guess your list items. But um, but yes, I host a trivia show um, live and in person in New York City and at various true crime events like CrimeCon. So yeah. yes, that's me. Rebecca is who we want to talk about true crime. And <laughs> one more quick plug for you is uh, Dr. Shiloh, who was recently on our show a few episodes back. Uh, she and I talked about the best true crime documentaries. She has also been on your show a couple times. So listeners will be familiar with her as well. Oh, big Dr. Shiloh fan. Oh, yeah. That makes two of us. Rebecca, from your body language and just the couple of times we've chatted, I can tell you're nervous about guessing this top 10 list today. And And that's pretty common. Every time I have one of these guest hosts on, they always seem to be kind of like, there's a good chance I'm going to make an idiot out of myself because you, like everybody that comes on, has no idea what the list is you're about to guess. No, you're right. I'm nervous and I'm not even, it's not that I'm competitive. It's that I'm like, well, dead air is boring, and I'm afraid I'm just going to be sitting here like, uh, I don't know, I don't know. But um, I will, I will work it out verbally, and I trust you, and I'm, I'm here for the whole process wherever it takes us. <laughs> you trust me, okay? Uh, we'll see if you still trust me later. Today we are talking about the top tenish 
most televised trials in history. Court trials, whatever you want to call it. That's Ooh. why I had the really cheesy intro this today about your honorable host. All rise. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. And I'm going to say that you and people listening that are not super into true crime, you've heard of every one of these. Like these are all oh, like household trials, very famous cases. Oh, I love this. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about how this is compiled. My sources are couple, mainly mentalfloss.coms where I pulled the ranking. I also pulled some data from A&E, Hollywood Reporter, and of course our friends at Wikipedia, which I did check the citations on there as well. This is a little different than most of our lists because it's not a true ranking. It's actually, well, it is the top 11 most watched cases on TV, but they're not in order because uh, they're ordered by most recent. So the most recent case is number one, in other words. Oh, yeah. okay. So you don't really have to worry about getting the order right as much because they're just all the top 11 cases. I keep saying cases, the trials. So I'm going to shine. Yeah, you got a big <laughs> shot. This is making it a little easier than, than, than normal. Okay, okay. Yeah. On April 11th, 1961, the trial of war criminal Adolf Eichmann was the first trial to be televised. Since then... There have been uh, a ton of trials that have made global news. So these are the 11 most watched trials ever based on global television viewership. With one caveat, this list was published in 2013. So keep that in 13? mind. 13? Yeah, quite a bit ago. It's the best I could find. 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So recent trials like uh, Derek Chavon or George Zimmerman, things like that, would probably be on here, but they're not today because we're only doing Good it as know. of 2013. Mm-hmm. Okay. And my last little housekeeping before I let turn you loose here, Rebecca, is that this is not going to be a true crime episode. I'm going to mention some of the main details of the crimes, but our focus will really be what happens in the courtroom today. Okay. Great. Cool. It's, it's that simple. Give me a guess. Oh, I just start guessing now. Okay, this is where... Uh, it, well, do you, uh, did you have anything you wanted to say? Well, I just had a quick question. Yeah. So I assume you, you said global audience, but these are all American legal criminals justice system cases. Okay. Yeah, they're all, okay. all 11 take place in America, but global viewership is included in the, in determining. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got to go with my gut feeling. My gut instinct tells me that the trial of the century, what we refer to as the trial of the century has to be on there, which would be the trial of OJ Simpson. OJ Simpson, the juice. The juice is loose. The juice is loose. Unfortunately, he was loose and let's see, I guess 1994 was when this took place or the, when the crime yeah. happened. O.J. Simpson is number six on here. So you mentioned trial of the century. In doing research for this, I found that every one of these cases, every one of these trials has had that moniker kind of bestowed on them. But I don't think any of them more true than the O.J. trial. I think the O.J. trial is probably the one that most people would guess first listening to this episode. I would think so. And that's interesting that people are just, that they're adding that to every trial. That's yeah. There <laughs> so was actually a Wikipedia page to say like, here's all the trials that have been called trial of the century. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Because there's no like official definition for that. It's kind of just. Yeah. It's kind of arbitrary. So the OJ trial, so much to cover here. This trial took place in 1995. It was for a double homicide. O.J. Simpson was nicknamed The Juice. He's an American football running back, broadcaster, actor, spokesperson. He was once very popular with the U.S. public, but he is now best known for being tried for the murders of his former wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, 
and her friend Ron Goldman. Those two were stabbed to death outside of Brown's condo in the Brentwood neighborhood of Los Angeles in June 1994. After investigators found a bloodstained glove on his property, and after OJ did not turn himself in after that, he became the object of a low-speed pursuit (laughs) in a white 1993 Ford Bronco SUV owned and driven by his friend Al Cowlings. So I love that it was a low-speed pursuit. Yeah, it's my favorite kind, really, because... (laughs) You know, probably less accidents, less chance of, you know, causing something horrible. I mean, the L.A. freeway, like that could have the potential to be really dangerous and have a lot of um, Mm -hmm. accidents. So, so yeah, we love a low speed chase. And I mean, the white Bronco is as ingrained in my mind as, you know, Mm -hmm. the glove that I'm sure we'll get to in the trial. Like that is a key element of like the brand of that oh, yeah. of that story is the white bronco and the white bronco low speed chase and the glove that we'll talk about both also parodied on Seinfeld of course of, co- of course Rebecca been a part of a lot of low speed pursuits can't say I have. I always, you know, I don't know if other people do this, but if I see a cop anywhere in the vicinity of where I'm driving, I assume they are low speed chasing me. And I'm just like, what did I do? Am I okay? Is it me they want? Like, are their lights going to go on? I just go into that mode automatically. But um, but no, can't say I've been in, a, in an actual chase. Well, you're missing no. out. Low speed pursuits, <laughs> really enthralling. Yeah, yeah. Well, that low speed pursuit That coverage of that interrupted the 1994 NBA Finals to broadcast that coverage. It it cut off the NBA Finals to show that. Wow. And it was viewed by 95 million people. Wow. Yeah, which is huge. We'll we'll talk more about TV numbers here in a minute. The pursuit itself and Simpson's subsequent arrests were among the most widely publicized events in American history. And I think we all know that listening to this, but I think we kind of take for granted how huge that is. Like the OJ Simpson trial is up there with like the JFK assassination, landing on the moon, all these huge events through history, for better or for worse, the OJ trial is in that same ballpark of historical significance, which is saying something. Yeah, it's saying a lot. And I've actually talked about this a lot on my podcast. That is one of the cases I would say that left a real impression on me based on the age I was when it happened. I was already interested in crime and and mystery and and things like that. But that trial, I remember watching it and saying, this is about more than murder. Yes. And I think that's why 95 million people watched The Chase and subsequently why this is the sixth highest viewed trial, because it was really about race. It was about celebrity and money and power. There were gender dynamics because of the, you know, alleged domestic abuse. So I looked at that case and I said, this this is so interesting to me because I don't think we're all tuning in because somebody was killed. There's more to this. So Or even that it was a celebrity that killed. Right. 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 There were a lot of elements. There's been countless books, documentaries, movies about this case. But I think, you know, if you're looking for a fictionalized uh, version, well, not fictionalized, but dramatized version of it. The People versus O.J. Simpson series. You seen that? Fantastic. Yeah, so good. Oh, yeah. It really hits on, uh, especially the race element of this, but all kinds yep. of those subtle and not subtle kind of angles to this. Yeah, I think that was an excellent series, perfectly cast, just so, so good. Maybe not John so Travolta, good. but <laughs> the rest perfectly cast. <laughs> Wait, this is the one with David Schwimmer, right? Yes, but John Travolta was... Shapiro. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, see, he's almost forgettable because he wasn't as big a player. But yeah, you're right. Maybe that was like the one mess. I mean, he wasn't <laughs> terrible, but he just seemed, yeah, I didn't like 
Yeah. But otherwise, solid series. Highly recommended. Agreed. Agreed. But I thought David Schwimmer surprised me. And I loved the Kardashian element, given now who the Kardashians are to us. That was such a fun throwback to the... Because they show these fictionalized versions of the Kardashian family as children. And it's just a wild, interesting, creative look at what may or may not have been. I mean, obviously, creative liberties, but... It's easy to forget that the Kardashians, Kim, all of them were... They were, you know, one degree removed from this trial as the children of the... uh, the famed dream team lead attorney. And now look at Kim getting her, you know, passing the bar and going on now to help with wrongful convictions. I find it a real beautiful full circle moment. Uh, Kanye next, maybe. (laughs) Okay. So speaking of that dream team, it was led by Johnny Cochran. Yes, of uh, course. Simpson's prone to theatrics defense attorney who famously declared Mm -hmm. during his closing arguments in reference to a pair of gloves assumed to be used by the killer and that the gloves did not fit the juice's hands. He said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Mm-hmm. And that was all she wrote. Cochran was able to convince the jury that there was a reasonable doubt concerning the DNA evidence in this case, which was a relatively new form of evidence in trials at the time. The reasonable doubt theory included evidence that the blood sample had allegedly been mishandled by lab scientists and technicians, and there were questionable circumstances that surrounded other court exhibits. Cochran and the defense team also alleged other misconduct by the LAPD related to racism and incompetence. And the LAPD will come up a few times today. There's a hint. Yeah. More than 100 million interested parties watched from home, which is about as many people tune in for most Super Bowls. Uh, So 100 million people, a Super Bowl's worth of people watching this trial unfold. The trial became historically significant because of the reaction to the verdict. Although the nation observed the same evidence presented at trial, a division along racial lines emerged in observers' opinions of the verdict, which the media dubbed the racial gap. Mm -hmm. So that's what you were saying. There's all this back and forth about was the jury biased and all that stuff, which we could spend a couple episodes talking about this, but (laughs) I'm going to move on. Well, I will say this. A poll of LA County residents showed that most African Americans thought justice had been served by the not guilty verdict, Mm. while the majority of whites and Latinos thought it was a racially motivated jury nullification by a mostly African American jury. Wow. However, more recent polls shows the gap has narrowed, and now over half of black residents as of 2013 in LA believe Simpson was guilty. Interesting. Simpson got off. He got a not guilty verdict. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that time and place in Los Angeles. That was a heated time fraught with racial tension from other cases and things happening that the reaction to that, I'm sure there were influences, you know, external influences, because a jury is made up of human beings with stories and hearts and and makes sense to me that the tide has shifted on that opinion. I'm actually, it's interesting to hear. Also, side note, but, you know, they do everything they can to find a fair and impartial jury, right? But taking away the specifics of the OJ trial, just trials in general, how do you find an impartial jury when it comes to a celebrity at the level of OJ? Yeah. Right? That's a challenge. For sure. If you've heard of a celebrity, most of the time, even if you don't know much about them, you have an opinion. Oh, I hate them or oh, they're okay. Mm -hmm. So... That's an interesting thing to consider. Very too. hard to be neutral mm-hmm. about a, a public figure. Yep. So OJ did get away with it. And after the trial, though, the father of Ron Goldman, one of the victims, he did sue OJ in civil court and won 
The jury unanimously found Simpson responsible for the deaths in that trial in 1997, and the Goldman family was awarded $33.5 million, or $54 million in today's money, but have only received a small portion of that figure to date. From upstanding, mm-hmm. never again in trouble with the law citizen, O.J. Simpson. Right, right. Yeah, he, he went on to live a, a very upstanding <laughs> life. We never heard any bad things about him again. Um, just a plug to Kim Goldman, who is Ron's sister, has written incredible books about her experience and also did an amazing podcast called Confronting OJ, oh. where she revisits this time in life and goes back and talks to all the major players of the trial and the case. It's beautifully, it's well done, and she's an amazing communicator. If you want kind of the human and personal side of that story, it's a great listen. What was it called again? Confronting OJ? Confronting OJ. And it's Kim Goldman is the host yeah. and she's the sister of Ron Goldman. I'm going to look that up for sure. See, this is why it's great. This is why you're here. Provide <laughs> this, these little tidbits that I'm not going to know. Yes. That sounds like a must listen, truly. It is. Speaking of must listen, I must listen to you. Give me a guess. Okay. I'm going to stay in Los Angeles and I'm going to guess uh, the Menendez brothers trial. Yeah. Actually, there's quite a few Los Angeles here. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to start really thinking hard. These two were like top of mind as soon as I knew. So um, yeah, Eric and Lyle Menendez, their trial. They are uh, number seven. Lyle and Eric Menendez, the brothers who killed their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what year the crime took place, but the trial took place in 1993. I think it was 89. Oh, there it is. Yep. August 89. Okay. So Lyle and Eric Menendez, in August 1989, they killed their parents. Jose Menendez, who was a big shot executive millionaire, and his wife Kitty were sleeping on a couch in the den of their Beverly Hills mansion when Lyle, age 21, and Eric, age 19, entered the den carrying shotguns. Red flag. Jose was shot in the back of the head with a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. Kitty was awakened by the shots and rose from the couch, She was shot in the leg and fell and was shot several times in the arm, chest, and face, leaving her unrecognizable. When the brothers returned home later that night, Lyle called the police and shouted, Someone killed my parents! Which was him. He killed his parents. Just to be clear. (laughs) Wonder who, yeah. (laughs) During the trial, the Menendez brothers stated they committed the murders in fear that their father would kill them after they threatened to expose him for years of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse. While the prosecution argued that they did it to inherit their, inherit their father's multi-million dollar estate. Rebecca, maybe you remember. I'm a bit fuzzy, but I think both things are true, right? There was physical and sexual abuse happening in the home, but they also killed their parents because they wanted the money. I mean, I don't know that there's definitive proof about the abuse. There are family members who have corroborated the boys' stories. There were cousins, Mm -hmm. and if not corroborate entirely, supported that that could be true. I don't think there was evidence of it. I think there was testimony about it, if I remember correctly. And there is definitely evidence of their spending spree post-inheritance that included, you know, sports cars and Rolex watches. And this was all before the police were on to them. They lived I mean, this, we know what really happened. It's hard to know why it really happened. And yeah. I think this is one of those cases where the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I never want to take away from a victim's story. I want to believe victims of abuse. But you do have to, you know, examine and critique and investigate. I think their dad was really intense. I think yes. he was very hard on them. Yes. I think there could have been some kind of abuse. I don't know if it was ongoing sexual abuse since one of them was younger. I don't know. I know... A lot of survivors of abuse don't blow their parents up with guns. Um, yeah, it's, 
Absolutely no excuse if it's true, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but I also know trauma manifests differently in different people. So, yep. but the the spending spree after certainly leaves a, a bad taste in one's mouth uh, when viewing it from the outside. Yeah, <laughs> it's like murder your parents one on one. Don't go spend their credit cards like the same day you murder them. Right? Like, well, I mean, yes. Absolutely. Write that book. Make that known <laughs> to people because that's what we want to teach them. It's free advice, everybody. If you kill your parents, first of all, don't. But if you do, wait a few days or even months before you start using their credit cards. Yeah, I think that speaks right to their privilege and right to their, they'll Absolutely. never suspect us. We said some guy did it, you know, like we called and said there was an intruder. Like this is foolproof. That's I it. Mean, We're in the clear. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, was good enough for them. Well, and they grew up in a life of privilege and never wanting for anything. Right. Maybe they have covered this and I've forgotten, but I would love the psychological analysis of this case from uh, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. Yeah. On LA Not So Confidential. Me too. Well, the trial also, one of the things about it that really stood out is how the boys who were, when the murder took place, they were 21 and 19. So they would have been mid to late 20s during the trial. They were dressed to look like small boys, young boys, by their defense attorney. Their hair and their clothes and their demeanor was all very childish to kind of paint them as these innocent little boys who could never do this or who were victim. They're the victims. Right. And their lawyer, who I know is played by Edie Falco in the series, why can I not remember this, um, their lawyer's name? Anyway, she not only kind of presented them that way, she called them the boys. She would say, yes. and I mean, she would refer to them as the boys, and she would put her hand on their shoulder and their head, and she was very maternal towards them. And that was all to, you know, create an image and a, those cues matter. Juries are looking for those kinds of things. And she was, you know, an expert at creating and supporting her narrative that she put forward. And it's just so interesting. Like, again, this could be a whole other podcast. So we can move on here in a second. But yeah. like just this whole strategy to murder trials, right? It's not just the facts and the evidence. There's strategy in what you wear, how you present yourself, what you say, who you make eye contact with in a trial. Like there's all these little things that can lead to a guilty or not guilty verdict that have nothing to do with the actual evidence, which I don't know how you solve that because we're all hum it's human nature, but it's just fascinating to me. It is. And a good lawyer knows what those things are and also spends resources. So when you have the privilege of being able to afford a really high-end attorney, they do things like hire jury, not investigators, but they have people, consultants, right, yeah, who, who right. help position the defendants in the best way. It's Leslie Abramson, by the way. I had, ah, to, yes. okay. I had to look. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we'll wrap a, or tie a bow on this and say that, taking a step back, the, the boys, as it were, were tried in the same trial, but by separate juries, which was also unusual. Yeah. But both juries were deadlocked. So it was a mistrial. Yep. It, because a media circus, obviously, it's on this list. So it must have been. So this, they had a second trial in 1995 where no cameras were allowed. Right. And it was that second trial where it only took four days for the brothers to be convicted, both on two counts of first degree murder, and they are currently both serving life in prison. Yep. The boys. Wild story. Yeah, but I hope the few uh, days they had with the Lamborghini after the murders, I hope they enjoyed that. Yeah. You've heard of Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, Paramount+, Plus, but something those services don't have is grade A quality content about top 10 lists. That's why we're bringing the world the fresh tennis content it needs with Tennis Pod Plus. 
Tennis Pod Plus is our rebranded Patreon program where you can get 30 plus exclusive bonus episodes right now with more added every month. Recent bonus episodes include the life and times of Dr. Phil, world monkey news headlines, top 10 most popular colors, and many more. Not only that, but Tennis Pod Plus members get early access to ad-free versions of our main episodes. If that's not enough, you'll also enjoy free merch and swag, monthly giveaways, and more. And now, introducing our hell of an asset tier, where small business owners can advertise their business on Tennis Podcast every month with custom ad reads by Brandon and yours truly. Are you ready to add some more plus to your life? It's easy. Simply go to TennisPod.com plus, select the tier you want, starts at just $2 and follow the steps to be signed up within minutes. Or if you're listening to my lovely voice right now on Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is go to our Apple Podcast page and tap the subscribe button near the top. In one tap, it will charge your Apple Pay payment method and you'll unlock immediate access to all of the content you're looking for. So get your beautiful bum bum moving and sign up now to start enjoying all of the sensual benefits of Tennis Pod Plus. Go to TennisPod.com plus that's P-L-U-S, or sign up through Apple Podcasts. Do it now so you never have to listen to another shitty ad like this again. Rebecca, uh, do you want to stay in L.A.? I don't because I can't think of anything in L.A. right now. So we're going to go to Florida. Okay, sure. And I'm going to guess Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Okay, there's, a, there's two Floridas on here. There's another Florida, too, I think you'll get later. <laughs> yeah, right. Florida. Florida's going to Florida. And Ted Bundy, he did a lot of stuff in Florida and other places. Ted Bundy's number 11. He's the oldest or furthest back, whatever, trial okay. on this list from 1979. Yep. There's been so much on Ted Bundy, so I'm not going to even spend really any time on his crimes. Good. I'll touch on it briefly, but he murdered at least 30 women between 1974 and 78. He kidnapped, raped, murdered them, uh, and after decades, uh, sorry, after more than a decade of denials, he confessed to 30 homicides committed in seven states, although some say his true victim count could be much higher. Yeah. In 1975, he was arrested and jailed in Utah for aggravated kidnapping and attempted assault. After that, he became suspect in a progressively longer list of unsolved homicides in several states. He faced murder charges in Colorado, uh, but he escaped from prison twice. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and he, it's, it's just crazy. Like, yeah. I know. And I meant to say this earlier, but for this and all these cases, just remember, this is a comedy podcast, mostly comedy. We're going to touch on these cases. Obviously, these are not meant to be comprehensive. You should seek out other podcasts, books, documentaries, etc. to get like real deep in these things. We're just giving <laughs> you an overview. Hopefully that's obvious, but yes. sometimes I feel like I need to say that. Okay, so he's facing murder charges. He escaped from prison twice. And that's where he escaped to Florida to uh, do three more murders before his ultimate recapture in 1978. So this is a quote, not written by me. It says, handsome and charismatic, Bundy's... Ugh. <laughs> Sorry, he interrupted. <laughs> the audible dismay in your voice. <laughs> I'm sick of it too. I'm sick of this... We need this... to cool it with yeah. the handsome because he isn't objectively. Yeah. It's just that he isn't, he doesn't look like the monster he is. So we just assigned him this good looking status that doesn't, it's not real. Totally. It's stupid. It's now, if we're talking about Zach Zac Efron's Bundy, I can listen to that. But Ted Bundy himself, no. uh, he, he was only attractive in that he wasn't unattractive and that he wasn't visually who you'd consider a serial killer. 
Exactly. And in the spectrum of serial killers that we'd known previously, sure, he might be on the <laughs> average end of that spectrum. But like the bar is pretty low at that point. So yeah, okay. but there's still Done. people even today that have the hots for this guy, which anyway, let's not get into that. Mm -mm. It says that because he was so quote handsome and so quote charismatic, charismatic I'll buy, his arrest and subsequent showboating made worldwide headlines. He was assigned five court-appointed attorneys, but the former law student, Bundy, insisted on leading his own defense, and even during the trial, he would speak about himself in the third person, which is just, like, such an asshole move. Ego. The ego is out of control. Yeah. He's a case study in out-of-control mm -hmm. ego, which really mm -hmm. is at the root of the whole thing with him. Like, all the crimes, mm -hmm. all came down to ego. Yeah. More than 250 journalists from around the globe descended on Miami, Florida in the summer of 1979 when proceedings began in the case of the Florida murders, where Bundy broke into a sorority house at Florida State University and attacked four women in less than 15 minutes. He went true berserker mode. He killed two of them. His trial was the first to be televised nationally. Did you know that? I did know that. And I want to add something to that sorority house story when you're done. Oh, well, go ahead. It's a good place to do that. Well, just you mentioned that two were killed and two survived. And I've yes. spoken to one of those survivors right. on Dialogue. Her name's Kathy Kleiner. And just for anybody who wants, again, a humanized version of the story and the appropriate focus, which should be a survivor, a victim of his, but a living victim. She's an incredible woman. And she also testified in the trial. She was a huge part, really, yeah. of the case against him. That's all. Kathy Kleiner. No, that's amazing. Super relevant plug. I'm glad you did that. And I had listened to that, too, back when you first released it, and highly yeah. recommended. A pretrial plea bargain was negotiated in which Bundy would plead guilty to killing the students in exchange for a firm 75-year prison sentence. At the last minute, however, Bundy refused the deal. A public defender, Mike Minerva, was quoted as saying it made him realize he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say he was guilty. He just couldn't do it. Yeah. There's that ego again. Bundy never confessed totally. to anything till the absolute very end, like the day before he was executed. Incriminating physical evidence included impressions of the bite wounds Bundy had inflicted on Lisa Levy's left buttock, which forensic odontologists matched to castings of Bundy's teeth. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting him on July 24th, 1979. Basically, the jury could have listened to about seven tennis podcast episodes. And in that time, they would have convicted this asshole. <laughs> they convicted him of three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of burglary. Uh, Bundy received two death sentences for those. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. During the penalty phase of the trial, Bundy took advantage of an obscure Florida law providing that a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage. As he was questioning former Washington State DES co-worker Carol Ann Boone, who had moved to Florida to be near Bundy, Bundy asked her to marry him while she was on the stand. She accepted, and Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married, and they eventually had a child together. Wild. That is wild. I, for I knew that and forgot, and you've reminded me. And I mean, it's the ego, but that tells you a lot about his mind. And I mean, he was working it right till the last minute, you know? Like, what's in it for him, and how could he get the best deal in the end? It's... um. I guess that is part of why people still talk about him. Yeah, and he thought to the very end, or at least he uh, externally put out that he was going to get away with this because he'd gotten away with everything his whole life, he thought. Uh, he escaped prison multiple times. He'd killed for yeah. five or more years. He thought, I can charm yeah. my way out of this. And I'm the smartest guy here. Of course I am. 
And you know, they, I mentioned they had a kid, he and yes. uh, Carol Ann Boone, and they, they weren't supposed to have been able to have Oof. a kid because conjugal visits were not allowed. But he bribed uh, a prison guard, is what I read. Ew. All of it, ew. I'm almost done with uh, this jerk, and then we can move on. In February 1980, in a separate trial, Bundy was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. And as that sentence was announced, he reportedly stood and shouted, Tell the jury they're wrong! The third death sentence would be the one to ultimately stick and carry out nine years later. Oh. He was put to death on the electric chair, January 24th, 1989, and outside, hundreds of people sang, danced, and set off fireworks in celebration. I remember that. So Ted Bundy, it's like we're all sick of talking about this guy, but when you go over these details, like you just said yeah. a minute ago, it's easy to see why his story is just so interesting. Yeah, there are elements about it that are really fascinating. Yeah, I do make room for that. I am so tired of him and his name, but I understand the interest, I I don't guess. need to see any more movies made about him, though. That I'll say. We're done. Like, mm -hmm. we're done with those. Let's, we've, I think we've hit the limit. All right. Agreed. So... I'm ready to go back to California. I thought of one. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait. No, this was post-2013. No, no, no. That won't work. Not ready to go back there yet. Okay. Don't know where this trial was. Actually, this one might have been California, but the crime was in Arizona, but the trial might have been California for some reason, but I'm going with the case, the trial against Jody Arias. Jody Arias, yes. Yes. Is it on there? there? Yeah. Uh, and you write about Arizona. Uh, I don't think California is where it took place, but close, both Southwest. So this is a story, it's number one, by the way, Jody Arias. Oh, wow. She, uh, it's 2013. And as I said before, I'm going to go over some of the high level stuff. We'll get into the case. But this is one of those like super weird and fascinating, like pre-crime yes. things. Last podcast on the left had a great series on it, among other podcasters, but like Really encourage people to look into this. Jody Arias, first degree murder. Mm -hmm. Here's the story. Her boyfriend, Travis Alexander, was an American salesman murdered by his ex-girlfriend, Jody Ann Arias, in Mesa, Arizona in 2008. At the time of the murder, Alexander, uh, Travis Alexander, sustained 27 to 29 knife wounds and a gunshot to the head. Which, by the way, all Jody was taking photos on a camera during all this. So you can see Travis's, like the look on his face when he sees her. It's like chilling. I'm sure you've seen the photo, Rebecca. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. You don't often get like that last glimpse and it's just fucking terrible. Yeah. Um, which uh, the camera's what led to her downfall also. Um, I was just going to say, mm -hmm. I mean, what a, oof, I don't want to say rookie mistake. That sounds way too trivial, but I mean, wow, that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, she testified that she killed him in self-defense, which the obvious thing I'll point out is you don't stab someone 29 times and then shoot them in the head and take photos the whole time you're doing it out of self-defense. So on June 9th, this was uh, a few, I think, weeks later, having been unable to reach Travis, a concerned group of friends went to his home. The group entered and found large pools of blood in the hallway uh, to the master bathroom and Alexander's body in the shower. Um, his friends told police about Jody by name as a possible suspect, stating that Travis had told them that she had been stalking him, accessing his Facebook account, and slashing his car's tires. Bad sign. Mm -hmm. So let's skip all the way to the trial. In closing arguments, Arias's defense argued that the premeditation theory did not make sense. Quote, what happened in that moment in time? 
the relationship, the relationship of chaos that ended in chaos as well. There is nothing about what happened on June 4th in that bathroom that looks planned. Couldn't it also be that after everything they went through in that relationship that she simply snapped? Ultimately, if Miss Arias is guilty of any crime at all, it is the crime of manslaughter and nothing more. Well, you know, what's interesting is that this is also a case I've covered on the show and I've interviewed her defense attorney. Oh, get out of here. He's a wonderful man. And what an interesting conversation, not just because of the Jody Arias story, but because you get this window into what it is to be a public defender. You don't get to fire your client. Like he did not want to represent mm. her. He yeah. was so over it. And there were two trials with her and he tried to get out of the second one and he couldn't. You don't have a choice. So you have to be the best lawyer you can be for your client, even when they are a piece of garbage who lies, which in my Can you opinion, imagine talking with this person, having a conversation with Jody, just from what I've read about her? Ugh. It sounds like hell on earth. She is a very difficult person and is very draining. She's kind of like one of those emotional vampire types. And Kirk Nurmi was her attorney and he's written books on it and he's been on my podcast. If you want just an interesting glimpse into our system about what does a lawyer do when they have to represent someone who's terrible, it's really interesting. But um, that story, and unlike the Menendez brothers, I think that self-defense case was garbage. Oh, absolutely. And the Menendez brothers' self-defense may have also been garbage, by the way. I just couldn't remember. Self-defense, yeah. yes. I guess I mean the abuse story. There was yeah. no proof or any signs that that was true with Travis. This was really a pretty straightforward case of like a jilted lover type And that's situation. what the prosecution said. They said there was yeah. no evidence that he ever laid a hand on her. Um, there was no way to appease this woman who just wouldn't leave him alone. Yeah. Which is absolutely true. And after 15 hours Ugh. of deliberation, Arias was found guilty of first-degree murder. All 12 jurors found her guilty of premeditated murder. And as the verdict was read, Travis Alexander's family smiled and hugged one another, and crowds outside the courtroom began cheering and chanting. Mm. So here's kind of uh, stepping away from the crime itself and just talking about the coverage of the crime. HLN, which I forget what that stands for, but it's the TV network. Do you remember what that stands oh, for? Oh, yeah. I, I've had an anchor from there on. HLN is... I'm looking it up. I have no idea. I think it's Headline News. Yes, I think you're right. Headline News. Okay. They were all over this, and they compared the case to another very famous case that's on this list that you're going to guess here in a minute. And they compare the similarities and the emotions the case incited in the general public. Hmm. Additionally, HLN aired a daily show covering the trial called HLN After Dark, the Jody Arias trial. Oh my gosh. The cable network sent out a press release titled HLN number one among ad-supported cable as Arias pleads for her life, <laughs> bragging that they led in the I mean, ratings. <laughs> it's like a soap opera. They were treating it like a nighttime drama. Them and America. Well, right. I yeah. mean, they were giving us what we wanted, clearly. But like, that yeah. is gross. But I also understand it because I find watching yeah. trials and court proceedings really interesting. And I don't think it's a bad idea for us to watch them. It shows you our criminal justice system in action. But for sure. the spin of like treating it like a like tonight's primetime entertainment, that's gross. Yeah, which it's gross. But I'm also... You know, I watch stuff like that. So who am but I I'm to say? But I'm tuning in yeah. for sure. No, no, yeah. I know. Yeah, there's a nuance though. I mean, there's another way to sure, like sure, sure. promote it. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, let me read their headline I'm... again. This was a press release yes, by HLN. Yes. 
Okay. HLN number one among ad-supported cable as Arius pleads for her life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like words Death matter. You know? She's pleading for her life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Did she get the death sentence? I'm actually not sure. No, she like narrowly avoided the death penalty, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Life in prison without the possibility of parole. So in that case, so the lawyer did his job. Like at that point, if you're her lawyer, your job is just to avoid the death penalty. You're obviously probably not going to get an acquittal. But uh, yeah. Oof. Super interesting case. So I mentioned there that HLN compared this trial to another one. Does that bring any bells for you? So it's got to be a woman because that seems yes. like an outlier. A couple names are coming to mind, but I don't think they're right. Darlie Routier? No. Is she on there? No. No. Think about... I'm sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, you go ahead and guess. No, I'll no, give you clues no. if you need it. Oh, okay. So clues, clues. I need clues. <laughs> it's a murder trial. Okay. People have a visceral reaction to just her name and face. Is she a serial killer? No. Okay. This is Florida. I'm going to kick myself. It's recent, 2011. Oh my gosh. I know people are screaming. People mm, are- Dead two-year-old girl. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe this didn't come up when I was in Florida. Casey Anthony. Casey of Anthony. Course. Of course. Of course they drew that comparison. Oh my gosh. Yes. Thank you for saving me, throwing me the lifeline. Yeah. I think Casey Anthony is the trial of the century post-OJ. Yeah. I could buy that. That was, uh, that was some riveting... I mean, because there was the whole missing... Her little girl was missing. Yes. Kaylee Anthony was missing before the arrest and before the trial. So that was like a saga that we followed for a very long time. What a horrible story. Absolutely. Casey Anthony's number three for 2011 tri uh, trial. And the story is just heartbreaking. So Kaylee Anthony, her daughter, was a two-year-old American girl who lived in Orlando with her mother and her grandparents, Casey's parents, George and Cindy Anthony. In July 2008, Kaylee was reported missing in a 911 call made by her grandmother, Cindy, who said she had not seen Kaylee for 31 days. Now, I don't know, just 31 days is a long-ass time to not see the granddaughter you live with again. It's a whole other thing. It's way uh, too so, long. Yeah. 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 And so she calls 911, haven't seen my granddaughter in 31 days. And she also said that her daughter, Casey, her car smelled like a dead body had been inside it. And I, I know that life. Mm. <laughs> not because I've had dead bodies in my car, to be clear, but just smelly cars. Cindy said Casey had given varied explanations as to Kaylee's whereabouts before finally telling her that she had not seen Kaylee for weeks. Casey lied to detectives, telling them Kaylee had been kidnapped by a nanny, Zanny the nanny, on June 9th, and that she had been trying to find her, too frightened to alert the authorities. She was charged with first-degree murder in October 2008 and pleaded not guilty. Now, October 2008 is before the body was found, so there's no body right. for Kaylee. But they are charging her with first-degree murder, and that's yeah. when the circus starts, the media circus. Two months later, which is five months after being reported missing in December, two-year-old Kaylee's skeletal remains were found with a blanket inside a laundry bag in a wooded area near the Anthony family house. The prosecution sought the death penalty and alleged Casey wished to free herself from parental responsibilities and murdered her daughter by administering chloroform and applying duct tape. <sighs> the defense team, led by Jose... Is it Bayes? 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 Bayes, I think. Countered that the child had drowned accidentally in the family swimming pool and that her grandfather, George Anthony, disposed of the body. Quick sidebar. To me, when I hear the like further details of the case that we're not going to have time to get into, 
me, it seems awfully clear that Casey wanted to have a night out. She gave mm-hmm. Kaylee Zanny the nanny, which was Xanax, gave her too much on accident, mm-hmm. and it, we go from there. Mm-hmm. Zanny the nanny. I mean, I that's that- all I need to hear to know the whole story, honestly. And it's sort of interesting because that was a lie, this whole fictional babysitter, but there's a truth revealed in it that was probably subconscious that she said that, right? I think that was just like your body and your mind are working in overtime. If you're lying to the police about something that horrific, the fact that that came out. I also think, you know, her mom tried to backpedal after saying there was this, it smelled like a dead body. Later, she said, well, it could have been like trash. There was pizza. It's like, you kind of have to believe what people tell you, especially in those critical moments. And I think that's exactly probably what happened. It was probably accidental. And then she had to, you know, figure something out. Figure something out. Exactly. And then unfortunately, she, like the Menendez brothers, did very stupid things immediately after. In that time period where she wasn't looking for her daughter, she was just out partying and getting a tattoo and dating and you know, not looking like a mother who's missing her, her toddler daughter. So Absolutely. That, it's just so sad. And there's the whole thing about where she lied and said she worked at Universal Studios. And oh, that was the police wild. show up there. Like she just started like on ground zero of this whole thing. When police first questioned her, she just started everything wrong. Every decision wrong. Every choice she made was the wrong choice. She got as far as going to the offices of Universal with the police. Like, yeah. saying she worked there until she got to the front desk and they're like, this woman doesn't work here. And she's like, well, no, I don't. Like, It's wild. It's totally George Costanza and Seinfeld <laughs> taking it as far as he can go before he yeah. has no choice but to come clean. Yeah, insane. The defense contended that Casey lied about this and other issues because of a dysfunctional upbringing. They said that her father sexually abused Casey. The defense did not present evidence as to how Kaylee died, nor evidence that Casey was sexually abused. So I'm pretty sure they said that and then never brought it up again. Mm -hmm. Yep. The jury found Casey not guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, and aggravated manslaughter of a child. But they did find her guilty of four misdemeanor counts of providing false information to a law officer. Two of those misdemeanors were eventually overturned. So Casey got out of this. It's incredible in hindsight. I will never understand it. Yeah, me either. This uh, goes on to say that if it weren't for polarizing personality Nancy Grace, a former prosecutor and uh, then HLN's most popular host and legal commentator, they don't think the case of Casey Anthony might have been such a national cultural obsession, which is a good way to put it, national cultural obsession. Mm -hmm. Largely spurred by Nancy Grace's outrage over the case, HLN offered all Casey coverage all the time for the entire six weeks of the trial not to mention the hundreds of hours logged analyzing the evidence in the three years that elapsed between Casey's arrest and the final verdict. And in the 15 minutes it took for the jury to announce its acquittal of the 25-year-old Casey Anthony, 5.2 million people watched the verdict on HLN cable network, bringing in the channel's highest ever ratings. Mm. Time magazine also described the case as the social media trial of the century. So yeah, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, Nancy Grace hated Casey Anthony and yep. and actually now that we're talking about Nancy Grace, I remember I'm going I can I I've just thought of another trial, but I don't know if we're there yet. I, I can hold it. I'm done with Casey Anthony. It's another one. I think all of these to be honest, but all of these are Ooh. worth reading more into. There's so much meat on the bones. We only have so much time. Tell me the one you're thinking of. So I was thinking of Nancy Grace, which brought me back to California with Scott Peterson. Has to be on that list. He's not. 
He's not? What? I know. What? what year was that? Well, that was like 99, 2000. That should have been televised. Was it not for some reason? Did they not let media in? I wonder. Because that was like an obsession. Like, everybody was talking about that case. Mm-hmm. I'm oh, dang. Okay, so we're back in California and I'm wrong. Okay, you look that up. I'm going to keep thinking. Also, we haven't had any serial killers, but maybe they all predate... Ted Bundy. Well, oh, right. We had Ted Bundy. There's one more serial killer. Oh, there is. Okay. One more serial <gasps> killer. There's one and he's rape. in California? No. He's not? No. Serial killer's not in California. Okay. So it's not Richard Ramirez? No. Okay. David Berkowitz, New York? No. No? Too early in history. Too early. This serial killer, the people might have had a taste for his trial, but this guy had a taste for something else. Oh, okay. Dahmer. <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? That was a great clue. Disgusting, but great. <laughs> That's how you could describe this show in general. Disgusting, but great. <laughs> you, can, you can quote me on that. Put it on a sticker. I will, for sure. I don't know anything about Dahmer's trial. Tell me. Really? Okay, that surprises me. No. Mm-mm. Jeffrey Dahmer's number nine from 1992, okay. his trial. I can't believe it was that recent for some reason. I thought he was earlier. Okay. No, okay. he was, uh, I think he was caught in 91 and trial in 92. And his is way different from Ted Bundy. So think about Ted Bundy while I talk about this. He was egomaniac, represented himself in court, never admitted to anything uh-huh. till the absolute last second. Keep all that in mind. Okay. So Jeffrey Dahmer, he was an American serial killer and sex offender who committed the murder and dismemberment of 17 men and boys between <sighs> 1978 and 1991. He got away with this for a long time. Wow. Many of his later murders involved necrophilia, cannibalism, and the permanent preservation of body parts, typically all or part of the skeleton. Mm. Now, for those of my listeners, I know not all of you are into these grisly details, so I'm not going to get into it if you don't want. Jeffrey Dahmer, let's just say, fucking horror show. Dark. So dark. Yeah. It's about as dark as it gets. When he was caught, he waived his right to have a lawyer present throughout his interrogations adding he wished to confess all as he had, quote, created this horror and it only makes sense I do everything to put an end to it. Hmm. Again, contrast that to Bundy. The trial was broadcasted nationally, but on a 10-second delay in order to carefully edit out those exhibits and discussions that might be too disturbing to viewers. Yeah. So this is cable television coverage of trials. Think about all the trials we've covered, like the quote-unquote bloodthirst, I'll call it, for lack of a better word, that just mm-hmm. the American public has for like these gritty details and trials. Uh, I'm sure it'd be different today, but in 1992, they were editing that shit out of the televised right, trials. Right, It's interesting. Wow. Yeah, it is. So Dahmer pled guilty to all charges brought against him, which waived his rights to an initial trial to establish guilt, which was part of Wisconsin law where this all took place. The issue then debated in court was by opposing counsels at Dahmer's trial was to determine whether he suffered from either a mental or personality disorder. Mm, you think? In February of 92, more than 60 global news organizations were on hand to broadcast the guilty verdict. He was ruled sane and not suffering from a mental disorder at the time of each of the 15 murders for which he was tried. In a statement to the court, Jeffrey Dahmer said, quote, I know my time in prison will be terrible, spoiler alert, <laughs> but I deserve whatever I get because of whatever I have done. Thank you, Your Honor, and I am prepared for your sentence, which I know will be the maximum. I ask for no consideration. What is more terrifying, that he was found not 
to have a mental <laughs> problem yeah, right. or that, you know what I mean? Like, which I don't know what's scarier. I think the fact that he doesn't is scarier. I mean, A plus for owning it, I guess. I like, don't know. if we want to. I don't know. I think, I mean, I'm not an expert. This is like where I'd love Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott again, but like, some of the things he does later in prison make me think he's, the whole thing's, he's playing a game. Right. Oh, see, I don't know anything about this. Okay. And I could I mean, be yeah, wrong, it's a- but because later in prison, he converts to Christianity, which is interesting given how his life ends. So he's, but I'm, I'm going to take a step back for a moment. He was sentenced okay. to 15 consecutive life sentences for his crimes. In November 94, so this is what, about two and a half years after he went to, after he was sentenced, he was beaten to death by fellow inmate Christopher Scarver. He had been severely bludgeoned about the head and face with a 20-inch or 51-centimeter metal bar. Aye. Scarver, the guy who killed him, alleged he had been revolted by Dahmer's crimes and that Dahmer had been openly unrepentant in prison. Hmm. Dahmer taunted prison employees and fellow inmates by shaping his prison food into imitations of severed limbs, complete with ketchup to simulate blood spattering. Oh. That fact is what makes me think, like, how sincere was he in court, you know? If that's true, I mean, I don't know if that's corroborated, if this guy's just I'm not full sure. of shit, but yeah. if that's true, I take it all back. I don't even know why I was giving him any credit at all. <laughs> like, he deserves <laughs> none, like, just for... But um, I didn't know any of that. I, to be really honest with you, I don't love serial killer stories for all my true crime interest. It's like kind of, it gets too dark for me. Like, yeah. this is a great example. I mean, that is, like, really not fun to think about. Well, I mean, and he got, That's I horrible. guess, a just end. Like, he still got caught, he still got to prison, and then he was brutally murdered. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how this all shakes out, but... I'm floored that that was in 1991 <laughs> or two. I can't believe this was right before OJ, right around yeah, the yeah. Menendez brothers. Like, to me, Dahmer exists in a different decade. I know his crime started earlier, but, like, that's... I learned something. I'd say 9091 is, like, his prime killing years. I did not know that. Yeah. That's so weird. One last thing. The guy who killed him, Scarver, he said that the prison staff knew that he hated Dahmer and they had deliberately left oh. the two men unsupervised so that he could kill him. <gasps> oh, Again, I don't know if that's wow. corroborated, but that's what he wow. says. Yeah. I mean, jailhouse justice, right? That could <laughs> I be guess true. So. Wow, wow, wow. Let's do a quick recap, actually. Yeah. You have 11 Ted Bundy. Nine, Jeffrey Dahmer. Seven, the Menendez brothers. Six, OJ. Mm -hmm. Three, Casey Anthony. And one, Jody Arias. You have several more in the 90s, including 92, same year as Dahmer. Oh my gosh. Can you take me to a region? Los Angeles, LAPD. Think about the same kind of issues we talked about in the OJ trial. Okay. Why is LA so hot and ready to pounce on a racial issue? Was it Rodney King? Rodney King, yes. The officers so who assaulted officer? Rodney King. Yeah, so his trial. There were four officers who were tried, yeah. Or their trials. Whoa. Yeah, oh, this wow. story is fucked up. So I didn't, like, I'd always heard about this case, but I never really read into it until I... Actually, yeah. me, me either. So, all right, be ready to learn. Okay, I love it. Number eight, the officers who assaulted Rodney King. Trial took place in 1992. Here's the very truncated version of the story. Okay. Rodney King was an African-American man who was a victim of police brutality. In March 1991, he was beaten by LAPD officers during his arrest after a high-speed chase 
uh, they were chasing him because he was intoxicated on the highway, uh, the interstate, actually. An uninvolved individual filmed the entire beating incident from a nearby Mm -hmm. balcony and sent the footage to a local news station. The footage showed an unarmed Rodney King on the ground being beaten after initially evading arrest. So let's be clear. King is, you know, he did something wrong. Mm -hmm. The police were after him, but that absolutely does not justify what happens next. Of course. King's injuries, they beat him on the ground with their clubs and shit. He suffered a broken right leg, badly cut and swollen face, bruises all over his body, and burns on his chest where he had been jolted with a stun gun. Four officers were eventually tried on charges of use of excessive force. Of these, three were acquitted, so only one was actually found. Uh, Actually, no, that one, the jury failed to reach a verdict on that charge. So nobody was actually found guilty in this. Wow. Yeah, which led to the riots. Hold that thought, though. Okay. The first two seconds of the videotape of the beating, contrary to the claims made by the accused officer, show King attempting to flee past one of the officers. During the next one minute and 19 seconds, King is beaten continuously by the officers. Afterward, the prosecution suggested that the jurors may have been acquitted, may have acquitted the officers because of becoming desensitized to the beating's violence. As the defense played the videotape repeatedly in slow motion in court, breaking it down until its emotional impact was lost on the jury. Fascinating, right? Show a video of someone getting beaten almost to death for a full minute. By the end of the court, uh, by the end of the trial, you've seen it so many times, you don't even register it. I mean, all I can think about are the parallels to what we just saw with Derek Chauvin's trial, which I know won't be on there because it's too recent. But um, of course, I remember the Rodney King beating and seeing that. And I remember the riots or what they're now calling the rebellions, which is interesting, afterward. But I don't remember the trial. But now hearing these outcomes, I understand the rage that must have been flying through that city, like over the injustice of it. That's really awful. Yeah, too many parallels to recent history. But let me tell you about that uproar. Yeah. Within hours of the acquittals, this same day, the 1992 Los Angeles riots started. Uh, The riots, you know, whether or not we want to call them riots, whatever, that's what Wikipedia called it. Yeah. The rioting lasted six days and killed 63 people. More than 2,000 were injured, more than 7,000 fires ignited, more than 12,000 arrested, and more than a billion dollars in property damage. Wow. Oh, that is awful. That is awful. But don't worry, Bill Cosby came on TV and said, don't worry, everyone, let's take our mind off this and watch the finale to the Cosby show. (laughs) Yeah, and we all know how that ended up. Jeez, this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, fucking Bill Cosby. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Such a liar, that guy. (laughs) Okay, so this breaks my heart on a number of levels because there was an injustice, but then the damage and the destruction and the violence as a result is, you know, equally tragic. So it's just, it's so And no one's held accountable, right? I mean, that's... And then no one's held accountable, yeah. yeah. I mean, 12,000 people were arrested because of the riots, but as far as what started (sighs) the riots, the the beating, no one was held accountable. Right. Uh, Well, almost, because in a separate civil lawsuit in 1994, a jury did find the city of Los Angeles liable and awarded Rodney King $3.8 million in damages, which is better than nothing. However, King's story doesn't end there. He, his life kind of has a sad ending. Mm. He had further arrests and convictions for driving violations after the 1991 incident. He struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction. But in a weird twist, in 2010, he married one of the jurors of his trial, Cynthia Kelly. Wow. Yeah. 
And that's almost 20 years after the trial, so they must have reconnected and got married. But then two years after that, she found him dead at the bottom of their swimming pool. The autopsy stated he died of an accidental drowning. He had drugs and alcohol in his system and also heart issues contributed as well. So just all around bad time for Rodney King. So sad. I mean, the trauma and the tragedy in his life, that is awful. I didn't know that about him. I didn't know his ending. And that's heavy. So I think we need to move to something a little less heavy for our next one. Okay. And I mean, it's still heavy. There's still alcoholism involved, but you feel much less bad for the victim in this case. Oh, interesting. This is a Hollywood celebrity who had, I'd say, the least consequential trial in this whole list. Okay. Can you give me a time period? 2010. Oh my gosh. What? Young woman. Celebrity. She was huge in like the 2000s. Hit a snag because of all these issues. Has been kind of out of the limelight for the last 10 plus years. And is now just starting to kind of make her get back in it. Singer or actress? Uh, Both, but primarily an actress. Okay, Lindsay Lohan? Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Lohan, Lohan, who knows? Yeah. But she's all the way up at number four. Honestly, I know she's been in trouble with the law. I had no idea there was a criminal court case like that was televised. Like, I didn't know that. I mean, I have the least notes on this because it's the least interesting. It's truly like, look at this. It's violating probation. That's what led her to court. But people were so obsessed with Lindsay Lohan. And she did such a, she was such a character that it drew interest. Interesting. I would never have thought this would have made this list. Okay. Yeah, me neither. Tell me more. I forgot, like... Once I heard it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember Lindsay being in legal trouble. But before that, I like completely slipped my mind. Yeah. But during the late 2000s, she became a fixture in tabloid press for her legal issues, court appearances, and a number of stints in rehab facilities due to alcoholism. And I think she's like 20 or 21 years old at this time. So pretty sad. Yeah. This period saw her lose several roles and had significantly impacted her career and public image. She was sentenced to 90 days uh, in jail and 90 days in rehab for repeatedly violating the terms of her probation, which was following two arrests for drunk driving in 2007. I mean, that's it. Hmm. That's what landed her at number four. Uh, TMZ attracted record website visitors during this time. It's probably been broken since then. But yeah, it was just kind of one of those freak show cases. I mean, think of everything we've covered. Riots and murder. and I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like... I'm not Lindsay Lohan's like biggest fan or anything, but like to see her on a list with Ted Bundy, OJ Simpson, it just Absolutely. doesn't feel right. Like if I was her PR person, I'd probably like scrub that list. I'd, I'd be working on getting her off that. <laughs> like, For that sure. That seems very unjust. That is so weird. I agree. But she's making a bit of a comeback now. I'm seeing her pop up and stuff more and more lately. Good. And I uh, also Mean Girls still holds up. It, well, Tina Fey had something to do with it. And that's, that's why. Um, that's a great movie. <laughs> It's true. Well, you're right. Lindsay Lohan is actually like the least pivotal part of that movie being so great. Yeah. I mean, she was good in it, but like that has the genius of Tina Fey behind it. And like the other casting was so great. Amy Poehler as well. Oh my gosh. Epic. Iconic. I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. I mean, we all all know it. We all live it. (laughs) That's you, right? That's how you base your... uh... Yes, that's how I parent. (laughs) I lean into that. (laughs) Could all use No, I'm pretty much like... I'm not a cool mom. I'm a regular mom is pretty much how I live. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Okay, good. (laughs) Okay, so um, uh, you got three left. Two of them are in LA again. What? Makes sense because it's all famous people. Like famous people is who end up on this list most of the time. 
which is like another conversation that needs to be had. But mm-hmm. um, I have a guess, but it's not one of these LA ones. But I feel like could Warren Jeffs be on this list? No. Good guess. No. But no. Okay. Okay. So two LA and then the other one's Florida. Of course. <laughs> I think it's been all LA, Florida, and then Wisconsin for Jeff Dahmer. I don't know where this person's trial was. I wouldn't think it was in Florida, but I have to think Ted Kaczynski would be on this list. No, another good no? guess, but no. Okay. Florida and two California. I'm going to need some clues. No serial killers. Okay, no serial killers. So that rules out half of Florida. Okay. Half of Florida. <laughs> Just kidding. This person is related to a president. Okay. Related to a president. The trial was in 1991. Rape trial. Oh. Oh, is it a Kennedy? It's Kennedy. Yeah. William Kennedy Smith. Yeah. 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 William. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I don't know much about this either. Me either. Like, I'd heard the name. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. This was the nephew of JFK. Wow. He was also a physician. And his trial in 1991 was highly publicized. It all began in March 1991 when William Kennedy Smith, then 30 years old, was in a bar in Palm Beach, Florida. Mm-hmm. There, he met Patricia Bowman, a 29-year-old woman. They went back to a nearby house owned by the Kennedy family and walked along the beach. It's there that the woman, Bowman, told police that he violently raped her. At trial, Smith said that he and Bowman had engaged in sex, but it had been consensual. And although three other women, including a law student and medical student, were willing to testify that they had been raped as well by Smith in in, uh, different incidents, their testimony was excluded on grounds that the pattern of behavior was not similar enough. Smith was acquitted of all charges. And in fact, it took the jury less than 75 minutes to reach a not guilty verdict. Whoa. So that tells me that the defense must have had a pretty compelling case. Yeah. 75 minutes is, uh, that's like practically, that's like right where we are right now recording in that amount of time. Yeah. That's wild. It's wild. I agree. He's acquitted of everything. And it was one of the first trials that gave everyday viewers an up-close look at how the American justice system truly operates. Huh. And lastly, as of 2011, Smith worked at MedRed, a Washington-based medical communications tech firm. So he's moved on with his life, I guess. Okay. That's something else. Like, you think about these people, Casey Anthony's another one. Like, Casey Anthony's not in prison. What are they doing with their lives now? Casey Anthony can't go anywhere, I'm sure, without being harassed. Yeah, she's had to almost live in hiding and she ended up dating and falling in love with either a lawyer from her team or an investigator from the case, something like that. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, it's almost a different kind of tough ending when they are acquitted. Like there's that Mm -hmm. brings a whole other set of problems. But I didn't know anything about that. You guys should do a Kennedy episode, like (sighs) top 10 craziest Kennedy moments. There's so many. There's so many. Listeners of the show, the Kennedy. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you have just number five and two left. They're both Hollywood. They both have to do with pop stars. Oh, Michael Jackson? Michael Jackson, but not Michael Jackson himself, although that's a good guess because he he had famous trials for his sex abuse claims. But it was actually after he died, the involuntary manslaughter from his physician, Dr. Conrad Murray. Oh my gosh. Tell me more. You don't know this? That wasn't what I was thinking. No. Yeah. It's crazy that this is no. on here, but like Michael Jackson's cases, which like nobody can, nobody can even say the name Michael Jackson anymore. And the first or second thing you think of is, he, did he uh, abuse children? Don't know. I know. So for him to not be on here, but this guy, it's just crazy. Yeah, that's surprising. Dr. Conrad Murray is number two. 
In 2011, he was charged with involuntary manslaughter. So here's the story. Just three months after the KC Anthony trial concluded, HLN attempted to recapture ratings glory by presenting beginning-to-end coverage of the trial of Conrad Murray. The physician eventually found guilty of involuntary manslaughter in the death of pop star Michael Jackson. While viewership never quite reached Casey Anthony level heights, it did boost the channel's October ratings by 98% over the prior year. Here's the uh, actual crime. In June 2009, Michael Jackson died of acute propofol. I can never say this fucking word. Propofol? 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 I don't know. I don't know how to say it. And benzodiazepine intoxication at his California home. Diazepam, benzodiazepam, I think. We're I going with it. We're going with it. Drugs. <laughs> Drugs were in the home. Drugs were in Michael Jackson's home for a long time. Mm-hmm. Conrad Murray, the physician, said that he found Jackson in his room not breathing and with a weak pulse. He administered CPR and to no ava- but to no avail. He called 911, but Michael Jackson was pronounced dead shortly thereafter. Televised memorial service held at the Staples Center in L.A., was viewed by an estimated 2.5 billion people around the world. Did you Ooh. hear that? 2.5 billion people. Wow, billion with a B. Yeah, that's like everyone with wow. a television, I have to assume. Had that Yeah, on. that's wild. Yeah. Anyway, two months after that, the LA County Department of Medical Examiner Coroner concluded that Jackson's death was actually a homicide. Jackson had been administered the drugs, which was an anti-anxiety, all those drugs we couldn't pronounce earlier. He was administered those by his mm-hmm. doctor, Murray. Murray was convicted of involuntary manslaughter in November 2011 and was released two years later, serving two years of a four-year prison. He got out early with good behavior. I knew nothing about that. So kind of an anticlimactic ending. I guess good for him if you're, if you're him. But um, yeah, Michael Jackson, his death. I can't believe he's been dead for, what, 13 years now? But yeah, that, that was everywhere at the time. crazy. Yeah, I would never have thought that would be on that list either. And what number was that on the list? Two. Huh, well, think okay. about it. 2.5 billion watched Michael Jackson's Oh, service, that'll do it. Right? Yeah. So, like that, so then yeah. if they're equating that to, sure, sure, sure. That's going to get all those residual, that interest. Okay. Absolutely. Rebecca, you made it to the end. So we're down to one? Number five. Think about, this was fairly recent, in the 2000s. Okay. Record producer, musician, songwriter. Really old guy. Uh, he died last year. Unrelated to any of this stuff. He just died of old age last year. This is not my niche. I don't... Okay. Give me one more... Like, give me a song that he would be responsible oh, for. I don't even know. Uh, he, he's from the 60s. Or a band. Let's see. A production style he described oh. as a Wagnerian approach to rock and roll. He developed the wall of sound. <laughs> I don't know anything about this shit. He's regarded as one of the most influential figures in pop music history and one of the most successful producers of the 1960s. Oh. I don't know. I'll know it when you say it. I can't believe I'm not going to get the last one. I don't know if I would have guessed it either, but 60s was a little before my time. Maybe we can get Brandon back on to help here. <laughs> Phil Spector. Oh, okay. That name means something that to me, but I something. would never have been able to. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to reach deep to get it. So, yeah. okay. Tell me about this. I'd heard the name. And again, that was about it for me. But yeah, he had two trials in 07 and 09. Here's what happened. In February of 2003, Phil Spector, again, this music legend and icon, he shot actress Lena Clarkson in the mouth while in his California mansion. Yes. The body was found slumped in a chair with a single gunshot wound to her mouth. Phil Spector told Esquire later that year that Clarkson's death was an accidental suicide and that she, quote, kissed the gun. Mm. However, his driver, Adriano de Sousa, 
said that he saw Phil Spector come out of the back door of the house with a gun in his hand. <laughs> but Phil Spector remained free while awaiting trial on a $1 million bail. So, Rebecca, if you ever go to prison or you're held awaiting trial, I'll come through with you and get you that million dollar bail. Yeah, you're getting that ad money on here, I see. Very good to <laughs> yeah. know. Good to know. We're in the millions. <laughs> trust me. <clears throat> Truth be told, Spectre's bizarre behavior and collection of wild wigs. That's the thing. If you look up photos from this trial, you're going to see this asshole wearing all kinds of weird wigs. Oh, that's so terrifying. That's what drew the attention. And look up his mugshots and photos before he died. You can see why he wore the wigs. <laughs> Just his hairstyle is crazy. Anyway, that's a lot of what got attention during this trial, which ended in a hung jury. So cameras were not allowed in the second trial, the retrial in 2009, where the jury declared Spectre guilty of murder in the second degree. He was immediately taken into custody and in May 2009 was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison in California. But he died just last year in January 2021 at the age of 81 from COVID complications. Oh, wow. I do remember hearing that, and I did just look him up, and he looks insane. He does look insane. That's an interesting story that I know. I remember when you started talking about the details of the murder. I wonder why that one isn't as etched in our memories as others. Yeah, it's like completely off my radar. It was. But man, sorry, I'm distracted looking at these fucking wigs. There's this one. Oh. Yeah. Are you seeing this one? That's. Let me send you this. Click on that link. I'm scared. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is, is going to be the last image I see before bed. This is like, yeah. like that. That's like a hazard. Like security should not have let him in the child. You could be hiding something in there. Yeah. Not only that, but like, imagine Rebecca, you're on trial, the trial of your life. You're old already. You don't have much time left. You've got to get out of this scot-free. You think, what's the best way to make a good impression on the jury? I know. I'll wear a wig that is going to fucking set off a fire alarm. Yeah. Listeners, you need to put this on your Instagram. It's, it's probably two feet in diameter. It's a big, round bouffant. It's like, <laughs> it looks crunchy and hairsprayed. It's insane. Also, the buttons on his shirt are like rivaling that wig. They're huge. Oh, yeah. This guy's got interesting choices. I'm going to have to dig a little deeper into this one. Yeah, I'm going to put a link to some of these photos in the show notes for this episode. Definitely check yes, it out. Yes, yes. Hmm. During the day. You'd be too scared at night. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the last episode released as we're recording this was about the top 10 creepypastas. Oh. And I think a creepypasta needs to be written about this fucking picture. Agreed. It's, there's a lot there, a lot to work with. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Well, we did it. Rebecca, you were so nervous and you did great. I was so nervous. Great ish. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well, hey, that's not keeping it on brand. You know, I'm glad I didn't completely disappoint, nor did I astound and amaze. So I feel no. good about it. And you had a that great co host to help you through, right? Indeed. I mean, you threw me some serious lifelines. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. Let's go back through those top 11 most televised court cases, court trials of all time. Number 11, the 1979 trial of Ted Bundy. Number 10, the 1991 rape trial of William Kennedy Smith. Number 9, the 1992 trial of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Number 8, the 1992 trial of the officers who assaulted Rodney King. Number 7, the 1993 trial of the boys, the Menendez brothers, who killed their parents. Number 6 is O.J. Simpson, the juice. The 1995 trial that he somehow got away with. Number five is Phil Spector, the last guy we talked about. 
Number four, completely out of place on this list, in my opinion, Lindsay Lohan. Number three, Casey Anthony. Number two, Dr. Conrad Murray, who got involuntary manslaughter for killing Michael Jackson. And number one, the 2013 trial of Jodi Arias, who stabbed her boyfriend, Travis, in Arizona up to 29 times and photographed the whole thing. We did it. I need a smoke break. Yeah. Hey, let's take a quick break from the murder and kidnapping and all that other fun stuff to read a few reviews from you, the listeners. Every week on the Tennis Podcast, I read reviews from Apple Podcasts, from Podchaser, and from Good Pods from listeners like you. First one comes from EBB on Apple. They say the banter is absolutely hilarious. I've never heard a more funny top 10 list than this. Enjoyed the show. They've never heard a more funny top 10 list than this. I don't know how many funny top 10 lists you're listening to, but I guess we'll take that as a compliment. In all seriousness, I appreciate the review. Thank you. The next one comes from Conspiracy Me on Podchaser. I like it already, that username. They say, trying to guess what is number one in a top 10 is like trying to put an elephant in the eye of a needle. Sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. Either way, great show. Trying to put an elephant in the eye of a needle. Well, conspiracy me, that's just physically impossible. But you can put a needle in an elephant. Might be the last thing you do, but you can do it. Anyway, thanks for that review. If you want me to read your review, no matter what it says, you know what to do. Rate us five stars, write a review. I will read it on a future episode. Now let's get back to my discussion with Rebecca. And it's awesome. You know, I didn't even think about this when I brought you on for this, but it worked out great that you like have super relevant episodes and even guests (laughs) on your own podcast that really tie into this. So that worked out great. Yeah, I couldn't help but mention them because it's like the first thing that will come to mind in some of those references. Yeah, especially for any of your listeners listening to us. They'll be like, hello, Rebecca covered that. She better mention this. (laughs) I know, right? Well, and this is a good segue because I want you to uh, give another plug for any of your podcasts. And if you have anything coming up that you know of that you want to plug, would love to hear more about that. Sure. Thank you. Um, Yeah, as I think you've probably heard a lot about dialogue at this point, I've had (laughs) several references come up over different trials. I will be at CrimeCon for anyone who is into true crime. It's a it's an annual convention. It's in Las Vegas. It's April 29th to May 1st. And I will be on Podcast Row. I will actually be doing trivia there. You can come meet Rebecca. Yeah, you can come meet me. Quiz her on this list. Bring this list with you and see if she remembers all 11 trials. I promise you I won't. I'll remember two if you're lucky, and they'll be the first two that I said. But yeah, hang on, dialogue hang on. I got to interrupt out. you one more time. What the listeners okay. need to do, if you're going to CrimeCon, print out a fo- that photo of <laughs> Phil Spector and bring that for Rebecca to sign for you. Oh my God. Oh, actually, that kind of would be amazing. And then, and then mail it to Nick. Just, just like round, <laughs> round out the loop. <laughs> Done. That one's for you. But yeah, new episodes of Dialogue come out every Wednesday. And if true crime isn't your thing, if you like kind of more of this pop culture space that's a little lighter criminality, those episodes are twice a month on Fridays. And they're really, really fun. If you like TV, reality TV, pop culture stuff, that's all over there. But you can find out everything I'm doing, including events on my website, which is my name, RebeccaSebastian.com. Yeah. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, I'm just looking back here to find it. What episode was this? Okay, season three, episode three. I was on your show, the top 10 modern cults you've probably never heard of. So any of my listeners that want to find a good diving in point on Rebecca's show, check that one out. That was a good one. 
Well, speaking of Colts, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode from the Colt of Tennis podcast. Rebecca, it was such a joy having you on. Hope we can do it again soon. Oh, I would love to. Thank you so much. And um, all the best to Brandon. Yes. And thanks for having me, Nick. Yes. All the best to Brandon. All the best to you, the folks at home. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next week for episode 167. I'll be joined by a different guest sidekick host for a different top tennis list. Until then, goodbye.